What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Yasin Elmandra is an analyst at ARK Invest who heads up their crypto research. ARK Invest and Yasin recently authored a brand new paper in concert with David Puel about on-chain metrics in the Bitcoin ecosystem. In this conversation, we talk about that paper. We talk about on-chain metrics, why it's so important, why ARK believes that this is some of the most important data in the entire financial system, and how you at home can start to learn to use it. I really enjoyed this conversation with Yasin, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is BlockFi. BlockFi provides financial products for crypto investors. Those products include a high-yield interest account, a U.S. dollar loan product against your crypto collateral, and a no-fee cryptocurrency trading product. BlockFi also just released a brand new Bitcoin Rewards credit card. It's a normal credit card that when you swipe it, you get Bitcoin back rather than cash back or airline miles. I'm an investor in the business, and I'm a very happy user. The BlockFi Bitcoin Rewards credit card is absolutely amazing. To start earning today, go visit BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP. I've got the credit card. I love it. I think you will too. BlockFi.com slash POMP. Next up is Choice. It's time to stop paying capital gains taxes on your Bitcoin. And Choice is here to help. Choice is rebuilding the way Bitcoiners approach retirement by making it possible to invest in Bitcoin and 19 other digital assets inside your IRA. Right now, every time you make a trade, you have to pay capital gains taxes that can be as high as 37%. Choice enables you to trade real Bitcoin, other cryptos, and stocks without having to pay a dime in capital gains. The best part? They just released an iOS app, so you can open an account in less than 10 minutes and take control of your future from the palm of your hand. Join me and the 20,000 other Bitcoiners who have started their tax-efficient stack and open your Choice account today. Search Stack Sats in the App Store or visit choiceapp.io slash POMP. Again, search Stack Sats in the App Store or visit choiceapp.io slash POMP. And one more thing, if you want to hold your private keys, Choice lets you do that too. Start stacking tax-efficient Satoshis today and visit choiceapp.io slash POMP. Last but not least are my friends over at Circle. If you manage corporate or institutional funds, you're probably looking for ways to access opportunities in crypto. You see the growth and momentum and you want exposure. But a lot of institutions don't know how or aren't comfortable with the risks of Bitcoin or DeFi. Now there's a new investment that's built specifically to help institutions get into digital assets. It's called Circle Yield. It's a blockchain-based investment built with USDC, the leading dollar digital currency. Circle Yield is over-collateralized and fully secured with Bitcoin collateral to protect your funds. This also makes it a great fit for crypto institutions who want to diversify their treasuries and reduce risks while staying all on chain. You get your choice of terms from 1 to 12 months in a fixed rate that's higher than what you'll get at a bank or in many fixed income markets. Visit circle.com slash POMP to book a meeting with one of their experts. Again, circle.com slash POMP and book a meeting with one of their experts. Big fan of Circle and I think you will be as well. All right, let's get in this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano runs POMP Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of POMP Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Let's just jump right into uh, some of the stuff from the uh, 
the report. We have your, um, you know, kind of, I guess, like hierarchical layer uh, overview, if you will. And what you talk about in the report is that you think that market participants can source on-chain data to analyze Bitcoin in more depth than is possible with any other traditional asset. So before we get into this kind of hierarchy, talk a little bit about that specific sentence, right? So market participants can source on-chain data to analyze Bitcoin in more depth than is possible with any other traditional asset. Sounds like a big statement. I tend to agree with you, but elaborate a little bit. It absolutely is, but uh, I I believe it is true. And I think that goes back to the nature of you know, what these assets represent and, and what they are at their core. Uh, so first off, when you think about, you know, an institutional investor's approach to gaining exposure to different asset classes, they always want some sort of fundamental framework Now, the, the or, or some sort of framework to analyze fundamentals. Now, the interesting thing is that Bitcoin doesn't really fit in the framework of traditional asset classes. And so because it doesn't, they automatically assume that uh, it, it's impossible to analyze fundamentals because it doesn't have any fundamentals. When in reality, if you look at what they are at their core, right, these public blockchains, they're, they're auditable, they're open, they're transparent software, which means that today anyone can pretty much download a Bitcoin client, install a node and extract insightful network data with pretty much no barrier to entry. Uh, the analogy that we give in the piece is that, you know, in the same way that a government statistical agency might publish data about a country's population or economy, or a public company is going to publish quarterly financial statements disclosing growth rates and earnings, Bitcoin and by extension public blockchains provide this real-time global ledger that publishes data about the network's activity and intereconomics. And so anyone at any time can go and really understand you know, buyer and seller behavior, long-term fundamentals, and see, you know, where where uh, where the market is at any given time. All right, so let's look at this uh, kind of I'll call it a hierarchical structure that you have here. You basically have broken uh, on-chain data into three layers, if you will. So you have layer one, network health; layer two, buyer and seller behavior; and then layer three, asset valuation. Uh, and on the right side, you kind of have who each one of those layers are. So walk us through kind of how you've thought about uh, this, and and why are you breaking down the various data uh, kind of across this uh, this framework. Sure. So, you know, the, the public blockchain offers a, a wealth of data, some, you know, more relevant to, depending on your on your time horizon than others. Uh, so we basically, you know, are organizing the, the type of data where the lower layers serve as building blocks for the higher layers. And ultimately, to your point, each of these layers uh, 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 kind of appeal to a different set of stakeholders with the top layer being, you know, a small a subset of the bottom layers. Uh, so, you, you know, you can think of it almost like layer one is the most raw, the rawest form of data when and layer three is the, is, is the most transformed form of data. Um, and so if you going to, to layer one, uh, it, it really just is the core of, the network health and kind of assessing that Bitcoin is working as designed. Uh, so you can almost think of it as like the basic fact sheet of the network. It's not going to necessarily tell you where price is. It's not going to tell you what holders are doing at any given time, but it's going to tell you that, you know, Bitcoin's monetary policy is predictable uh, that every 10 minutes you have a, a specific number of, uh, of Bitcoin that are, that are being issued. Uh, that the miners are are working as designed, that transaction volume and active addresses, uh, you know, are at specific levels, 
Uh, so it basically gives you the general state of the network. And so if you're a Bitcoin proponent or a Bitcoin believer or a Bitcoin holder, uh, this layer one is going to say, okay, ch I'm checking the boxes and Bitcoin is working as designed. Uh, now, a, a layer above that, uh, it, it delves a little bit deeper, and that's, and that's basically by, by wallet address. Um, so what's really unique here is that, that the public blockchains, they, they offer two data points in every address on the Bitcoin ledger. The first is, is the number of coins located in each address, so the volume, uh, and then the amount of time the, the coins have, have been in each address, so that's time. Um, and so if you, if you kind of draw what, what, what that would look like, let's say, in the equity markets, it would be the same thing as if, you know, anyone interested would be able to track uh, the ownership of company shares by quantity, by holding period, and by purchase, sale, and prices. So data in the middle layer really allows for you uh, to understand what buyer and seller behavior looks like. So things like realized capitalization, I think, are is a foundational metric that would be that would fit in layer two, uh, which is basically a, a proxy for the the cost basis of holders. So so that that's something that's very informative, especially when you think about how Bitcoin derives value, really based on you know supply and demand. It's it's a relatively non-productive asset, and so value is going to accrue based on reservation demand. So knowing the cost basis of holders is really informative to, 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 and, and suggests, you know, whether or not the market is being controlled by longer term or shorter term holders. Uh, and, and then finally, the data in the top layer basically leverages the two lower layers and, and provides, you know, relative valuation metrics that might identify short to midterm inefficiencies in Bitcoin's price. Um, so, you know, while we're long term focused, well, I think that, you know, every Bitcoin holder should be long term focused. I also believe that on-chain data provides some really interesting insight that allows for you to identify inefficiencies in price in the short to midterm uh, and, and, and effectively come up with these really compelling, you know, oscillators or signals, maybe similar to like an EV to EBITDA ratio in the public equity markets. Uh, and these basically leverage um, kind of the, again, the bottom two layers. Uh, I'd say the most uh, prominent of, of the metrics that I'm, I'm sure your audience is familiar with if they have dabbled a little bit in on-chain is something like the MVRV ratio, uh, which basically is the market cap over the realized cap uh, and tends to you know, identify generational bottoms when the realized cap exceeds market cap for brief periods. Uh, the last time that that happened was during the COVID crash, which, uh, which you know, in, in hindsight was a, a generational bottom. Yeah, it's pretty incredible when you when you kind of think through these three uh, components. Um, and, and I think that uh, I don't want to go through the entire report because I really want people to go and, and read it for themselves. I, I, you know, it's 28 pages. Uh, it'd probably be some of the best 28 pages you can read if uh, uh, you're into uh, Bitcoin and, and a lot of this data. Um, but I do want to dive into, uh, if we go back to the bottom of the pyramid, kind of layer one, um, you, you've got a section in the report that says assessing the health of the Bitcoin network. And we have this table um, where you basically break down, okay, if we're going to assess the health of the uh, Bitcoin network, there's kind of three ways that you cut it. You cut it by monetary integrity, you cut it by security, and you cut it by usage. And so talk us through kind of why are these three uh, pieces, um, the three kind of aspects or cuts that you look at when you evaluate that layer one of assessing the health of the Bitcoin network? Like why, why these three? Sure. So I, I, think, I think it goes back to the, the core of what, what Bitcoin is as a you know, non-sovereign monetary system. 
you know, when people talk about what Bitcoin's value proposition is, it's not, you know, all the bells and whistles that Bitcoin has to offer. It's the fact that it's really competing as a global base money in a decentralized way. And so the, the paradigm or the mental model that needs to be adopted when analyzing the fundamentals of the Bitcoin network, I think should resemble how you'd analyze something, uh, how you'd analyze a, a monetary system. Uh, so first and foremost is around monetary integrity. I think the reason why Bitcoin distinguishes itself as a monetary asset relative to other public blockchains is the predictability in its monetary policy. Uh, this, I, I believe that at least the, what Bitcoin is competing on is in a monetary revolution and not a technological revolution. And as such, being able to, you know, not only verify your holdings at any given time, but then verify uh, this total circulating supply uh, is a fundamental feature in, in, in Bitcoin. Uh, and, and if it were to break, would, would ultimately, uh, you know, not bode well for its underlying fundamentals. Uh, now, how, how does monetary integrity remain intact? Well, you need to have a secure and robust chain uh, that, that where, where the economic incentives are, 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 are well aligned. Uh, and so, you know, when you think about specifically uh, the, the dynamics between miners uh, and, you know, and, and nodes and, and developers, and users, uh, you know, making sure that, that, that the, 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 the network is being secured as designed is, is again, a fundamental, um, you know, is fundamental to understanding the health of the network. Uh, so, you know, I'd say on a weekly basis, we go through these on-chain metrics just because we, we manage around some of the volatility. And, uh, and the most recent sort of metric on, on hash rate where we've seen a full recovery, well, if you don't count yesterday's uh, drop off from the Kazakhstan internet shutdown, uh, since like basically China's migration, or, or hash rate migration out of China. Um, so the ability for Bitcoin to recover within six months, uh, that hash rate levels and, and effectively put to bed that China controls the Bitcoin narrative uh, is, is, is really important to understanding and, and having high conviction in long-term fundamentals. And, and then finally around usage, it's really thinking about, you know, the Bitcoin is being used as this, you know, global settlement network uh, that active addresses are hovering between 800,000 to a million at any given time. That transaction volume this year, I think adjusted transaction volume, we've seen $13 trillion uh, worth of volume settled, which exceeds now Visa's uh, total transaction volume and, and is, uh, you know, w within a, an order of magnitude of the Fed wire. Uh, so there's, you know, a lot of interesting and compelling data points uh, that, that allows us to assess the long-term fundamentals but that does, won't necessarily inform us on, you know, what price is going to do. And when you think about these uh, kind of on-chain data points, obviously ARC is known for uh, one, disruptive technology, two, being very kind of research heavy, three, open sourcing a lot of this, which, which is right in line with this type of report. How do you guys think about using this data? Is it just uh, so that it kind of informs uh, kind of more macro thoughts around the asset? Is there, you know, specific trading that you can do off of it? Just how do you think about it as an asset manager, obviously having this kind of, you know, really robust, transparent, near real-time data set uh, at your disposal? We, we use it extensively, and I alluded to this, but uh, we actively manage Bitcoin and leverage the volatility. I think volatility is our friend. Uh, and, you know, we have kind of different areas of research that we focus on uh, that, that basically, you know, uh, uh, informs us on what, what the market looks like at any given time. 
it obviously starts with kind of the macro backdrop of, okay, you know, Bitcoin is an extremely compelling asset to have exposure to in this, in, you know, in this environment. Uh, but then when you kind of look at on a week to week basis, you know, we rely very heavily on on-chain data, the second and third layers uh, to inform us on where we're at in the market. And we will trade around that uh, based on, based on what the, the market is telling us. So a combination of on-chain data and then general market structure, liquidity and sentiment. Um, so things like, you know, funding rates and, and just the, the, the perpetual swap futures market. Uh, and then we'll put a, like a little cherry on top of where we'll, you know, corroborate with, with just traditional technical analysis, but that's really the, the least of our priorities. I think what's interesting is that on-chain data has really kind of replaced the traditional TA. And, and in fact, a TA is what on-chain data, uh, or on-chain is what TA aspires to be, uh, but is not. Um, and so I think that, you know, increasingly people are gonna start to rely on on-chain data to inform them of sort of the midterm uh, sentiment. Uh, and over time, you know, some of the metrics that we rely on today are likely going to be arbitraged away. Uh, but it's an active emergent field where we're constantly iterating on, you know, basically figuring out ways to generate alpha. Got it. And, and in terms of um, as a traditional asset manager, I guess one of the things that uh, to me uh, really catches my attention, once you have this data set and you don't have it with the legacy assets, Will we see asset managers either one, maybe not demand the the data points, right? Because, you know, let's use public equities versus Bitcoin as kind of an easy example. So Bitcoin, I have transparent ledger near real time. I can do a bunch of different stuff with the data, uh, but it's kind of there for me to use. At the same time with public equities, I basically get every quarter an update the data that they provide is what they provide. And you get some of this, you know, I, I always love in the like uh, quarterly report, something like, hey, we're not going to break out. Uh, Amazon's not going to break out their revenue for AWS this quarter. Or maybe they do break it out, right? So like there, there's some, what do we want to release? What do we not want to release on a product by product basis or, or anything like that? Um, and then obviously inside some of these companies, we don't know things like the volume of transactions. They may just tell us uh, kind of revenue, but not uh, anything else. So from that standpoint, um, how do you think about traditional asset managers as they start to see the benefits of this? And like, will there be changes to the legacy assets or legacy markets because of it once they realize that this is valuable? Yeah, you, you bring up a really good point. And I think that it, it probably is not going to come from the, tr the asset managers themselves or the companies themselves. It's going to come from the investors who are going to demand and expect transparency regardless of the asset class. I think I think what crypto and Bitcoin is is providing is almost they're, they're, it's adding pressure to the status quo of look if you're not going to abide by the standards that we expect you to abide by then we're going to leave uh, there are other options out there um, so I could very well see a scenario where maybe private companies start start disclosing and have like this you know transparent dashboard uh, and then or, or public companies you know maybe have uh, a, a way to you know disclose their 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 numbers. Uh, in more granularity than they do today or at, at a higher frequency than they do today. It, it almost reminds me of what Bitcoin is is doing to like, you know, the central bank regimes of at the very least, if Bitcoin doesn't replace them, uh, it, it figures out a way to discipline them. Um, so there is a there is a we are going to discipline monetary authorities. We are going to discipline, uh, you know, traditional assets 
uh, and and uh, transparency is is at the core. Uh, of all of this. So I, I think that you bring up a really good point. And then when you start to think about Bitcoin itself, uh, if we kind of just zoom out a little bit, how has that been changing in the kind of the institutional uh, asset management world? Uh, you know, you guys talk to tons and tons of your peers, uh, some folks that maybe you think of yourself as competitive to, some that you think is complementary. Um, but w- what's the conversation been like throughout 2021 going into this new year uh, around Bitcoin as, you know, you guys start to publish great reports like this and, and really starts to showcase like, hey, this can be uh, evaluated using uh, frameworks that they would be familiar with, or, or at least they could wrap their heads around. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say that the that the narrative has has definitely evolved in 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 the right direction. You know, I, I think the question goes from should I gain exposure to Bitcoin, which was you know maybe the 2018 2019 era, to how do I gain exposure, which is like the 2020 era, um, to now how do I gain the most efficient exposure, which is what we're seeing. I think we're starting to see Bitcoin at, for the institutional investor be much less of a of a contrarian bet as well. Um, it's hard now to dismiss it. It's uh, it's gone from this weird internet money Ponzi scheme to a potential threat to monetary authorities. So I, I think at the very least, people are going to do it of a uh, are going to allocate just in case. By extension, we we start to see uh, more interest in in assets beyond Bitcoin. Uh, just, you know, basic human psychology says, okay, if I miss the Bitcoin boat, uh, you know, what do I do to make sure I don't miss the others? Uh, so I, I'd say that people are starting to recognize that gaining the most efficient exposure to Bitcoin might require some sort of active management strategy uh, in which, you know, you leverage all of this on-chain data to, to, to make sure that, you know, if you see a 65K top, uh, that you can do something about it. Um, you know, I think a lot of people in the 2017, 2018 cycle uh, were, were really happy to, to, to see Bitcoin go from 3K to 20K, but it then went back from 20K down to 3K. Uh, and, and a lot of people just held all the way down. Um, so, it, you know, if, if, there's a, if there's a way to kind of manage around that volatility while remaining long-term focused, uh, I think that's the sweet spot. Yeah. Joe, John, what questions do you guys have for Yassine? Yassine, hey, how are you doing? Thanks for coming on. Uh, so my question would just be around kind of what the average long-term holder should be looking at. So I think a lot of people that watch this show, some of them are certainly interested in uh, s- some of these charts and all of this metrics and on-chain stuff for sure. But then there's a portion of people who just hold Bitcoin, right? And they believe in the long-term value of it and don't want to check these things every day. Maybe don't even check the price, but once or twice a week or maybe even less than that. What should they be looking at? Is it where they just look at the security, the hash rate or the addresses every once in a while? Or should they be doing something more in your eyes? I, I honestly think that the second layer is core to investors who are really interested in you know, Bitcoin as a, as a long-term holder, but that, doesn't, that don't necessarily you know, want to trade around it or you know, think about it on a, on a month-to-month basis. Uh, but also like, you know, want something a little bit more than, okay, Bitcoin's monetary policy is predictable. Um, so things like understanding that the holding behavior is becoming longer term focused is, is a really easy way to, you know, add conviction to, um, you know, your, your Bitcoin holding. Uh, so something like, uh, something as simple as like looking at HODL waves, for example, which is basically just, um, you know, uh, taking the age bands of Bitcoin circulating supply and showing basically how much, what percentage of Bitcoin has been held by, you know, what group of holders um, over a specific time frame, 
and you can base you you can you can see versus the 2017 market cycle just how much Bitcoin's holder base has matured. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of people like to use these four-year market cycles and take, you know, historical uh, uh, kind of behavior and say, okay, well, what we saw in 2017 is probably what we're going to see in 2021. I think one of the biggest divergences that we've seen relative to 2017 is that the holder base is much longer term focused today than they were four years ago. Um, so I, I would say that that would be the biggest thing I'd pay attention to is, you know, where where the money is uh, and, and who's holding it and how much conviction uh, they have. And so even when you see a massive drawdown, so for instance, the the uh, the 20 uh, uh, 20 um, uh, COVID where we uh, draw down where we went from like 9K to 3K in the span of a week. Um, if you look at who was actually controlling that sell-off, they were all short-term holders. They were all holders that, that were holding Bitcoin for fewer than six months. And so as investors, when we're looking at that, it's like, okay, if my long-term holders are holding strong here and these are all kind of weak holders, you know, I'm either going to add to my position and I'm definitely not going to sell. Uh, and, and, you know, I, 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 can, I can go to sleep in, in peace knowing that, that the fundamentals remain intact. John, what questions you got? Asim, how do you think about Bitcoin in, as an asset in the macro environment, right? So it currently sits around $1 trillion asset just below. Does it have to take capital from other places? How do you think about all that? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the beautiful thing about Bitcoin's potential market opportunity is that all the use cases are, are additive, right? So you have a fixed 21 million supply, but for every Bitcoin that's being used as digital gold, that Bitcoin can't be used as like an insurance policy against arbitrary asset seizure. And for every Bitcoin that's being used again as an insurance policy can't be used as a, you know, a remittance asset. Um, so I think that what we're starting to see is, you know, questions on, you know, the dynamics relative to inflation. You know, some people are saying, you know, that this is good, this is Bitcoin's going to be um, good in the face of all this inflation, but others are, are expecting, you know, that we might see a, a surprise uh, and, and go through like a deflationary environment catalyzed by technology, in which case, where does Bitcoin stand there? Um, I'd say that it, it really doesn't matter because we're starting to see that people are stacking their stats uh, in different ways. Uh, we have a big ideas report coming out in a few weeks and you'll see how we size the opportunity. We have basically, you know, eight different use cases that we've sized, everything from Bitcoin being an economic settlement network to Bitcoin being digital gold, to Bitcoin being a corporate treasury uh, reserve, to Bitcoin being a national treasury reserve. Um, and so that's kind of the, the beautiful thing about this is I think uh, there's an arms race to, to find a scarce, reliable, and now decentralized asset. Uh, and, and Bitcoin will be the, the beneficiary of that. Um, in the, in it re really regardless of the, the environment. Yeah. See, one of my other questions for you is how do you think about like El Salvador, right? It's kind of this, like, it's not really macro, it's not really, uh, on-chain data related, but it is definitely an external shock that maybe is on the opposite end of the spectrum as like the China mining, you know, migration ban, whatever you want to call it. So I look at those two things as like, one is obviously more positive, one is more negative, uh, but they're these like almost um, industry developments, if you will, 
Uh, do you guys try to wrap your heads around that or do you try to stick to just, Hey, is this a risk asset or not? What's its relationship to like interest rates macro? And then what's the on-chain data telling us in terms of like trading? Like how how do you think about those maybe more industry development stuff? Yeah. I think the El Salvador news is, is fundamental to, to understanding the trajectory of, of Bitcoin, uh, and points to some of the, the game theory at play amongst nation states. Right. Bitcoin is borderless. It is neutral. It is apolitical. Uh, and there is an understanding that uh, user uh, u- users of Bitcoin aren't really segmented by country or by IP address or by email or by name. It's by private keys. Uh, and so when something something like El Sal- a country like El Salvador decides to adopt it as, as legal tender, uh, it, it, it's a huge statement. And I think that will end up catalyzing a massive shift specifically in emerging markets to, to take Bitcoin a little bit more seriously and effectively cut dependencies on, on either their, their own fiat currency or on the US. Um, you know, when you look at the, the, the evolution of El Salvador, uh, they were able to onboard, you know, three plus million users to the Chivo wallet, which in comparison to traditional bank accounts in El Salvador is almost twice that. So the 1.9 million traditional bank accounts versus the three plus million uh, uh, Chiva wallet users goes to show uh, just how, you know, you know, paradigm shifting Bitcoin is um, as an alternative to traditional banking. Uh, I, I definitely think that we're, we're going to see more momentum from emerging markets uh, to at the very least, you know, you know, promote it and advocate for it. Uh, if not outright uh, adopted as legal tender or allocated into a central bank balance sheet. Yeah, makes sense. And and then I guess one of the other things that we saw El Salvador is doing uh, some of this, we've seen some other people try it in the public markets is they're basically taking Bitcoin as an asset and they're incorporating it into other financial instruments. So they're doing kind of Bitcoin backed bonds where uh, they're going to issue this uh, kind of sovereign bond. Then they take a portion of it. They're going to go buy Bitcoin. The other portion of it, they'll go kind of invest in infrastructure. Uh, we've seen some people, um, I don't know, to you know, maybe varying degrees of success say, look, we're going to have an instrument that has 80, 90% of a traditional asset and, you know, 10, 20% of Bitcoin. Do you see that becoming a more popular narrative, maybe in things like fixed income, where they try to juice returns with kind of a small, almost hedged allocation? Or is that something that, you know, it's cute, but it is unlikely to really find an audience in the institutional world that you guys deal with? No, I do think that there is definitely a case to be made to to have that diversified exposure uh, in these more traditional instruments, especially given, I think, in the next, you know, five, 10 years, we're going to still see Bitcoin uncorrelated to traditional asset classes over longer term time horizons. Uh, and so it's almost like a barbell strategy of, you know, I'm going to just, just do this, this Bitcoin thing uh, and then maybe have a, a little bit of fixed income. Uh, I think increasingly people are starting to to realize that, but then ultimately we'll, we'll just want to have, they're going to effectively bite the bullet and say, you know, I'm just going to have an exclusive slice in my portfolio dedicated to all things uh, Bitcoin. Got it. Um, where can we send people to find you on the internet or, uh, or, or find the report? I just dropped the link to the report into uh, the chat here, but where, uh, where should we send people to find you on the internet? Appreciate it. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Yassine Arc. Uh, you can go to our website, check out the report at arc-invest.com. Uh, and really happy to be here. And thank you so much for having me. And thanks for pushing the frontier on all things on chain. I've watched your, your shows and, uh, and your podcasts, obviously. 
Uh, and I, I, I think that, you know, your contribution to putting this on the map does not go unnoticed. So really appreciate it. I, uh, I, I'm just trying to figure out how the hell I keep up with you, David, Will, Dylan, all these people who, uh, who are on the frontier of the on-chain metrics because uh, you guys are doing a fantastic job. So keep up the great work. If you don't follow Yassine on Twitter, go follow him. And uh, we'll definitely bring you back as, uh, as this all develops, my friend. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Good to see the, the trio in action, too. Nice <laughs> <to meet you. laughs> all right. Thanks, buddy.